Well, thank you. It really is a, a great pleasure and privilege to be here. I love historic occasions and indeed uh, uh, also want to extend uh, my thanks to the Taupman Foundation and to Leonard Wallach uh, who made it possible. And of course it is uh, in a sense a historic occasion for me as well. I've spoken all over the country this year about the 350th anniversary, but never in the presence of my in-laws. So it's uh, <laughs> historic for me too. And now, uh, the assignment that, uh, that I've been given uh, this evening is a, a daunting one. Uh, it is, as I understand it, to summarize the whole history of American Judaism, 350 years, and then also its future, say another 350 years, all, uh, so to speak, while standing on one foot. It calls to mind an experience I had about, three, about 30 years ago when I became interested for the first time uh, in this history. I mentioned my interest to a very... Uh, a well-known scholar at a distinguished rabbinical seminary. He was absolutely appalled. He was going to give me the whole history on one foot. American Jewish history growled at me. I'll tell you all that you need to know about American Jewish history. The Jews came to America. They abandoned their faith. They began to live like Goyim, like Gentiles. And after a generation or two, they intermarried and disappeared. <laughs> that, he said, is American Jewish history. All the rest is commentary. <laughs> Don't waste your time. Go and study Talmud. As you can see, I did not take this great sage's advice, but I have long remembered his analysis, for it reflects, as I now recognize, a long-standing fear, really hundreds of years old, fear that Judaism in America is doomed, that it simply cannot survive in an environment of religious freedom and church-state separation. In a country like ours, where religion is totally voluntary, religious diversity is the norm, everyone is free to choose their own rabbi, their own synagogue, their own brand of Judaism, or indeed, no Judaism, many, uh, and not just rabbinical school uh, professors, have assumed that Judaism, a small minority faith, is sooner or later fated to disappear. Now, a critical lesson of the 350th anniversary is that when all is said and done, American Jews are still here. Moreover, when we study uh, the past properly, we find that over and over again, Jews in America rose to meet the challenges both internal and external, that threaten Jewish continuity, sometimes, as we shall see, by promoting radical discontinuities. Casting aside old paradigms, Jews 
transformed their faith, really reinventing American Judaism in an attempt to make it more appealing, more meaningful, more sensitive to the concerns of the day. Now, they didn't always succeed, and there are lots of Jews who have, over the years, fallen away. There are Nemorovskis who became Clarks. There are Cones who became Carey. Remember him? There are Albrights who became Episcopalian. But the story of American Judaism, I nevertheless insist, is not the stereotypical story of linear descent the story of people who start off orthodox and end up marching down the aisle of a church. It is instead a much more dynamic story, in this way akin, I think, to many a story in American religion. A story of people, in our case, struggling to be Americans and Jews. A story of people who lose their faith and a story of people who regain their faith. A story of assimilation, to be sure, uh, but also a story of revitalization. Now, in recounting this dynamic story here, I have a serious problem, which is that no matter how fast I talk, uh, I can't recount it all in the time allotted. So what I'm actually going to do is to focus on a few moments and trends in the past and a few uh, thoughts about the future, and then I hope we'll have some time uh, for questions so uh, we'll be able to fill in any, uh, anything that I, uh, I leave out. Now, the first thing that some of you may wonder is when does American Jewish history really begin? The great American Jewish historian Jacob Rader Marcus used to warn his students that it is futile to search for the first American Jew anywhere. There always was another Jew who was there before. <laughs> and that turns out to be, in this case, quite sage wisdom. We now know that there was one Joachim Ganser in Roanoke all the way back in 1585, and Solomon Franco was in Boston in 1649. He only lasted 10 weeks. Uh, and there were some secret Jews in the South and the Southwest even earlier. But there's no Jewish community of any kind established until 1654. And as the synagogue members here will attest, community is absolutely essential to ongoing Jewish continuity. By setting 1654 as the date when American Jewish history began, the American Jewish community was consciously arguing that individual Jews who have no contact with other Jews and secret Jews who keep Judaism to themselves, they do not determine Jewish history. Jewish history and the Jewish future depend rather on the establishment and maintenance of Jewish community, and that is why the events of 1654 are celebrated rather than the lone individuals who came earlier. 
Now, the Jews who came to, in their words, live and reside in 1654 were mostly Sephardic Jews, formerly crypto-Jews, popular term is Moranos, who returned to Judaism under the Dutch, and uh, then they moved and settled in the Dutch colony of Recife, uh, in Brazil, the Dutch conquer a piece of Recife in 1630, and that becomes something of a Jewish boomtown. Uh, for about 20 years, it is the most important Jewish community in the New World. But in 1654, Recife fell to the Portuguese, who reconquered uh, that area from the Dutch. Uh, the Inquisition was going to return. And under the terms of surrender, both the Jews and the Protestants were given three months to leave. Jewish history, by the way, teaches us a very important lesson here. If they give you three months to leave, take the hint. <laughs> Those Jews did. They scatter, most go back to Holland, uh, some go to other Caribbean communities, Curacao, Suriname, Jamaica. A small group, the traditional number is 23, made their way to the furthest reaches of the Dutch New World and landed about September of 1654 uh, in the port of New Amsterdam. Now, uh, the governor of New Amsterdam, as many of you know, was a man named Peter Stuyvesant. Uh, he was the son of a Calvinist minister. As part of my research on my book, I had the occasion to read a very old biography of, uh, uh, of Peter Stuyvesant. And there I learned that uh, Peter Stuyvesant himself uh, had trained to be a Dutch Calvinist minister. He went to Franeker, uh, where they uh, indeed trained people for the ministry. And then the book reported that, unfortunately, something happened to the daughter of his landlady, and Peter Stuyvesant decided to go abroad. <laughs> what is interesting about that, of course, is it helps to explain where Peter Stuyvesant was coming from. He was trained as a minister, and he deeply believed that the ideal uh, community, the ideal colony, was a religiously homogeneous uh, colony. He thought that New Amsterdam was already too full of religious dissenters, and the Jews he considered even worse, deceitful, repugnant, hateful enemies and blasphemers of the name of Christ, he called them. He wanted those Jews expelled, and he warned significantly, this is actually the most important line in the whole correspondence between Peter Stuyvesant and the Dutch West India uh, Company uh, back in Holland concerning the Jews. He warned that giving them, meaning the Jews, liberty, we cannot refuse the Lutherans and the Papists, the Catholics. So there goes the neighborhood. But more seriously, what Stuyvesant understood is that the decision about admitting Jews into New Amsterdam was nothing less than a decision about the religious character of New Amsterdam. 
Would it be a religiously homogeneous colony as he wanted, or would it be religiously pluralistic? And here, as also later in our history, we find that Jews as a small minority in America played a surprisingly critical role in expanding the parameters of religious liberty for all Americans. The fate of Jews in 1654, I would argue still today, was tied in with that of other persecuted faiths and minority groups. Ultimately, of course, the Dutch West India Company decided that the usefulness of Jews, the fact that they might help to enrich the colonies, was far more important than the faith of those Jews. It didn't hurt that there were significant Jewish stockholders in the Dutch West India Company. Never hurts, yeah. So it was that the Dutch authorities ordered Peter Stuyvesant against his will to permit Jews to travel, trade, live, and remain, provided a rather interesting proviso that the poor among them shall not become a burden to the company or to the community, but be supported by their own nation. So from the beginning, Jews were simultaneously to be part of the larger society and apart from it. They lived, interacted, and traded with other colonists, but they were part of their own nation, different from Christians. And it's worth considering how much that is still true today. Well, so much for colonial Jews. If you want more, see chapter 1. Let's uh, <laughs> jump ahead to the 1820s when... American Judaism, as we know it, was really created. Before the 1820s, each American Jewish community basically had one Sephardic synagogue, which was totally monopolistic. It controlled all aspects of American Jewish life, from life cycle events, to kosher food, to Jewish education. The synagogue in the early period was, for all intents and purposes, the Jewish community. It disciplined those who violated its rules. Yeah, you didn't come to services. You might get a fine. Some rabbis think that was a good idea. But, um, and it levied assessments. Now, there actually were some very great advantages to that old um, monopolistic system the unified synagogue community of early American Jewry promoted group solidarity and discipline. It evoked a sense of tradition, a feeling of kinship towards similarly organized synagogue communities throughout the Jewish world. It enhanced the chances that even small clusters of Jews, remote from the wellsprings of Jewish learning, could survive from one generation to the next. But freedom and democracy, as we understand those terms, the right to dissent, the right to challenge the synagogue leadership in a free election, the right to secede and form a competing congregation, those did not loom large among the values of the early American synagogue, 
Jews of that time would have viewed such ideas as dangerous to Judaism and to the welfare of the Jewish community as a whole. And yet it is precisely these values, freedom and democracy, that become central values of American society in the wake of the American Revolution and during the ensuing decades, we see synagogues trying to reconcile Judaism with these new values of the larger society. The question, critical question, is whether Jews could maintain the traditional structure that bound them together and promoted group survival and yet at the same time also accommodate new political and cultural and religious realities. And, and we see this challenge in different forms repeated over and over again in the history of American Judaism. Jews grappled with that problem for decades without notable success. By the 1820s, we find young people opting out of Jewish life a spirit of what was called apathy and neglect had descended upon the community, many people wondered whether young American Jews born after the American Revolution and caught up in its heady atmosphere of liberty and freedom would remain Jewish at all. This is their perennial question. Yes, can Judaism survive as a minority faith in America? What is remarkable about this moment in the 1820s is that young Jews in their late teens and 20s and 30s moved to revitalize Judaism just as they saw Protestantism being revived at the same time in what we call the Second Great Awakening. These young Jews advocated changes aimed at bringing Jews back into the synagogue and strengthening Jewish life. Uh, in New York, uh, we see young Jews petitioning for an early morning worship service. They believed that the best way to revitalize Judaism was to educate Jews, in their words, to extend a knowledge of Judaism's divine precepts, ceremonies, and worship among our brethren generally and the inquiring youth in particular. They sought a service that was much less formal than the one at the, the old Sephardic synagogue of New York, Sheriff Israel, and they wanted time set aside for explanations and instruction without a permanent leader, and most revealingly, with no distinctions made among the members, rich and poor. They give in a wonderful petition to the leaders of the synagogue, and the petition was rejected. And they then seceded from Sheriff Israel, and citing the, what they call the wise and Republican laws of this country, they formed a competing synagogue, New York's first Ashkenazic congregation, a congregation that went according to Germanic customs 
uh, named B'nai Jeshurun. It actually still exists in New York. Today the New Yorkers call it BJ, and it's still full of young, rather rebellious young people trying to find some way to reconcile Judaism uh, with the contemporary ethos. Now in Charleston, at about the same time, young Jews proposed more radical changes aimed at revitalizing Judaism. The Jews in Charleston felt that it wasn't enough to educate Jews. Judaism itself needed to be changed if it was to survive. And they advocated an abbreviated service, vernacular prayers, a weekly sermon, an end to traditional free will offerings in the synagogue. Their petition, too, was dismissed out of hand by the elders of the congregation, uh, who were, in fact, about 30 years their senior, what we used to call a generation gap. And like their New York counterparts, these young people seceded from the established synagogue in Charleston, creating instead what must be the congregation with the longest name in all of American Jewish history, the Reformed Society of Israelites for promoting true principles of Judaism according to its purity and spirit. If you ever get tired with the name B'nai B'rith, you might think about that name. Uh, it is, of course, a forerunner of uh, Reformed Judaism. Now, together, these Jews, most of them young, dissatisfied with the American Jewish establishment, influenced by the world around them, and fearful that Judaism would not continue unless it changed, they produced a religious revolution that spread from New York and Charleston, the two largest communities of Jews at that time, spread throughout the country. In city after city, monopolistic synagogue communities were overthrown, and young people replaced a monolithic Judaism with one that was much more democratic and free and diverse and competitive. American Judaism, as later generations knew it, in many ways as we know it today, was actually shaped by this revolution of the mid-1820s. Now, I recount this episode to remind us that we actually have an empowering history, that is to say, a history filled with examples of people, men and women alike, who revitalized Judaism and changed the course of American Jewish life. American Jewish history, like all good history, is not just a record of events. It is the story of how people shaped events, establishing and maintaining communities, responding to challenges, working for change. That, perhaps, is the greatest lesson that the 350th anniversary of American Jewish life can offer Americans today. The lesson that, uh, now I speak to the students here, the lesson that you, too, can make a difference, that the future is yours to create. 
Now, the story of American Judaism over the next century in our chronology, roughly from 1820 to 1924, is the story of immigration. Hundreds of thousands of Central European Jews and then millions of East European Jews crossed to America's shores, swelling the nation's Jewish population from 3,000 in 1820 to about 3.5 million in 1920. So American Judaism would have been a very good investment uh, over that century. <laughs> Jews spread out across the country, wherever rivers, roads, or railroad tracks took them. Like the bulk of immigrants to America's shores then and later, Jews pursued opportunities wherever they found them. But over and over again, the same perennial question recurred. Is America a land that is good for Jews, but bad for Judaism? Will the immigrants and their children and their grandchildren keep the faith? And through all of those years, we actually see three basic strategies uh, that attempted to ensure that they would keep the faith. The first strategy, which we usually associate with Orthodox or early conservative Judaism, advocated tradition in an American key. Uh, like those early Jews at B'nai Jeshurun, it emphasized Jewish education above all, but was prepared to countenance modernity as long as it did not violate Jewish law. Tradition, according to this first strategy, is what holds Jews together. The second strategy, associated with the reform and later the reconstructionist and other movements, presumes that Judaism itself needs to change in order for it to survive. Reformers urged the abandonment of laws and rituals that seemed incompatible with modernity and advocated innovations that promised to make Judaism more appealing and spiritually uplifting. Only significant changes in Judaism itself reformers have believed will keep Judaism alive and lure young Jews back to the synagogue. The third strategy aimed at preserving Judaism in America, it's actually the one that most of the books forget about, rejected the synagogue altogether and actually focused on ties of peoplehood as the unifying element in Jewish life that idea found its most important institutional expression in the Jewish fraternal organization, B'nai B'rith, and although later B'nai B'rith was involved in founding congregations, as I assume this one, uh, when it was established in 1843, uh, it was altogether different. If you look at B'nai B'rith's original constitution, doesn't mention God, doesn't mention Torah, doesn't mention ritual commandments, doesn't mention religious faith. It stresses instead the importance of Jewish unity. Synagogues divide Jews, alienate some of them altogether. 
B'nai B'rith and other later advocates of Jewish peoplehood like the Federation Movement or even the Zionist Movement insisted, they felt the ties of culture and peoplehood, the bonds that bind Jews one to another regardless of religious ideologies, those it felt would ultimately keep Jews Jewish and preserve Jewish life. Now, the history of American Judaism down to our very day is replete with oscillations back and forth among those three different strategies. Which of our core values, American Jews have long wondered, should be priority number one? Should it be to uphold and maintain Judaism's sacred religious traditions? Should it be to adapt Judaism to new conditions of life in a new land? Or should it be to preserve above all a strong sense of Jewish peoplehood and communal unity? And the answer to that question, of course, is yes, yes, and yes. Indeed, I think most Jews cherished all three of those core values, but they actually stand in abject tension with one another, and those tensions actually are highly beneficial for proponents of different strategies in American Jewish life have historically checked each other's excesses. There is a kind of checks and balances system uh, at work in the American Jewish community, uh, much as in our federal government. And together, those three strategies accomplished what none might have accomplished separately. They kept American Judaism going. But the benefit came at a steep price. Often, even to this very day, American Jewish religious life has seethed with acrimonious contention the unseemly specter of Jews battling Jews. Now, moving to the present today, as Jews throughout the country have been commemorating their anniversary on American soil, and I've had the occasion to... Uh, uh, go all around the country in, in making addresses, I find that in community after community, Jews actually feel somewhat bewildered and uncertain. They wonder, should we focus on quality to enhance Judaism or focus on quantity to increase the number of Jews? Should we embrace intermarriage as an opportunity for outreach or condemn intermarriage as a disaster for offspring? Should we build religious bridges or fortify religious boundaries, strengthen religious authority or promote religious autonomy? Should we harmonize Judaism with contemporary culture? or uphold Jewish tradition against contemporary culture? Should we compromise for the sake of Jewish unity or stand firm for cherished Jewish principles? You, of course, don't expect me to answer any of those questions. 
But these actually are the questions that Jews all over the country and in different movements are today debating, and like most great religious questions, they admit of no easy answers. Now, what of the future? The great American uh, philosopher Yogi Berra once observed that prophecy is very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> that is well worth remembering as we proceed, but let me nevertheless uh, notice a few trends. First of all, I think it may be that this very year, the year 2005, will be viewed as the end of an era that began about 60 years ago. 60 years ago, in 1945, the Holocaust cruelly redrew the map of world Jewry. European Jewry by then was decimated, and the American Jewish community in 1945 emerged as the largest and most powerful Jewish community on the face of the earth. Historians Oscar and Mary Handlin recognized as early as 1949 that, quote, the answers to the most critical questions as to the future of Jews everywhere will be determined by the attitudes and position of the five million Jews who are citizens of the American Republic. Now, American Jewry today remains powerful and influential. But Israel, this year, has overtaken the United States as the largest Jewish population center in the world. Uh, just uh, this month, Israel put out new figures based on its census and boasts five and a half million Jews, including, I should point out, 290,000 that are not recognized by the country's orthodox establishment. An American jury is estimated at about 5.2 million Jews, also including hundreds of thousands whom some would not recognize as Jewish. But balancing, it's about 5.5 million to 5.2 million. Israel's rise to numerical superiority in the Jewish world is, I think, a development of enormous portent. It's really one of only a handful of such transformations of Jewish centers in all of Jewish history and marks the first time since the days of the Bible that the largest population center of world Jewry is actually found in the land of Israel. By the way, it may interest you to know there are also today more Jews in greater Tel Aviv than in greater New York. New York is no longer the greatest Jewish city uh, in the world. Today it is greater Tel Aviv. Now, it's too soon to fully understand the implications of this enormous demographic transformation but I do think that we may look back and say that we have entered a new era characterized by a very different definition of the center of Jewry, perhaps a two-center model, an American center, Israeli center, certainly a different relationship 
between the Jews of Israel and the Jews of the United States, very different from what it was in 1949 when the Hanlons were writing, and a somewhat different division of responsibilities. Indeed, we may well see a more competitive model of Jewish life in which each center vies for political and cultural primacy. Second trend, while Israel's Jewish population has been rising, the Jewish population of the United States has been on a decline. It's really the first time that we've actually seen a decline since colonial days. Jews peaked at 3.7% of America's population in the 1940s. Today it's about half that, just 1.8%. And for many years we routinely spoke of there being between 5.5 and 6 million Jews. Today, as I said, the best estimates, all estimates in America are disputed, uh, the best estimates are about 5.2 million. Now, there are four major causes of this decline. The first is a declining Jewish birth rate. There are about 1.8 children per couple. Zero population growth is 2.1 per couple. If you come on a Sunday morning, you see all those 0.8 children running around uh, the temple. Uh, the second reason is uh, vanishing rates of immigration after... Um, uh, the Soviet Union emptied out, there really is nowhere else for a large number of immigrants to come from uh, to the United States, a large number of Jewish immigrants, and in any case, since September 11th, uh, immigration of all kinds to the United States has basically uh, vanished. The third reason is declining rate of conversion uh, to Judaism. That is really an unintended consequence of the, of the patrilineal descent decision, the decision on the part of liberal Jewish movements to recognize as Jewish the children of um, uh, both father, whether the father is Jewish or the mother is Jewish, so long as uh, the children demonstrate in certain ways, their interest in Judaism, that led to a decline in conversion. Why should I bother studying for conversion? The children will be Jewish anyway. And the fourth and most important reason are the burgeoning effects of non-marriage, which is much more important than we generally recognize. We talk about other issues, but non-marriage uh, is enormously important in the American Jewish community. Late marriage and, of course, intermarriage. Uh, there are recent figures that suggest there are 2,345,000 Americans who report having Jewish grandparents but not being Jewish uh, themselves. And that, of course, explains why the population has gone down uh, instead of going up. So taken all together, the data suggests to me that American juries' numbers will continue slowly to decline as the number of Jews are also, by the way, declining throughout uh, the diaspora. The only country um, really where the number of Jews is, is on the rise uh, is Israel, with the possible exception of Germany for a different reason, and that has to do uh, with immigration. The third trend, still speaking of the diaspora, 
I think that in the years ahead, American Jews will view the Jewish diaspora very differently from the way it is viewed today. Most Jews think uh, still that Jews are part of a global people spread from one end of the world even unto the other. That is the image Jews carry with them. The reality, though, is that the Jewish world is rapidly consolidating. About 80% of world Jewry lives in two countries, the United States and Israel. Half of all Jews actually live in five metropolitan areas. Half of all Jews. Tel Aviv, New York, Los Angeles, Haifa, and Jerusalem. 97% of all Jews live in 14 countries. If you get bored, see if you can list them. A mere 37 countries even have communities of 5,000 Jews or more. Most of the 200 or so countries of the world, including several where Jews had lived for millennia, Iraq, Syria, Ethiopia, are now completely barren of Jews or show tiny communities, less than a thousand Jews, tiny communities that are unsustainable. Indeed, huge areas of the world today show no Jewish presence whatsoever. Now, there is a silver lining uh, in that data. The vast majority of diaspora Jews, as the great demographer Sergio de la Pergola has shown, have moved since World War II to economically affluent, politically stable, socially attractive environments. They abandoned underdeveloped countries like Yemen and dangerous, unstable countries like Afghanistan, except for those two Jews who were left who quarreled with one another. Uh, one of them has since passed away. And now uh, they live in the world's most economically advanced countries, America, Israel, Canada, and France. But this benefit comes at a price where most of the world's great religions Christianity, Islam, Eastern religions are today expanding. Judaism is contracting. Where other peoples are preaching the gospel of globalism and spreading their diasporas north, south, east, and west, Jews, who actually invented the very concept of a diaspora, are reducing their exposure to the larger world and practicing consolidation. And the question in the years ahead is what the implications of this remarkable post-war consolidation of world jury will prove to be. Will it prove to have been a prescient move on the part of the Jewish community, or will it prove to be a blunder of historic proportions? Finally, uh, American Jews today, and at least for the immediate future, seem likely to witness two contradictory trends operating within the Jewish community. It's certainly true today, and there's no reason to believe it won't continue. We see simultaneously both assimilation and revitalization. So one week you read in the Jewish newspaper that intermarriage is going through the roof, 
And the next week you read the Jewish day schools are bursting at the seams. One week you learn that the Jewish birth rate is collapsing, and the next week you see the Jewish culture of every kind, art and music and dance and theater or film, Jewish culture is flourishing. Which will ultimately predominate? Assimilation or revitalization? Nobody knows. That, along with the rest of the future of the American Jewish community, is not predetermined. It will actually be determined day by day, community by community, Jew by Jew. Every day, American Jews are being told, as I was told 30 years ago, and as other Jews were told in colonial times and in the era of the American Revolution, and in the 19th century and in the 20th century, that Judaism in America is doomed, that assimilation and intermarriage are inevitable. And that may yet prove true. I continue to worry. I actually think it's good for Jews and other small minority groups to worry. Keeps them from growing complacent. Besides, the doctors tell me that hypochondriacs live a long life. <laughs> but history, I insist, also suggests another possibility. That today, as so often before, American Jews will find creative ways to maintain Jewish life with the help of visionary leaders, committed followers, and generous philanthropists. It may still prove possible for the current vanishing generation of American Jews to be succeeded by another vanishing generation and then still another. A nation dying for thousands of years, the great Jewish philosopher Shimon Ravidovitz once observed, means a living nation. Our incessant dying means uninterrupted living, rising, standing up, beginning anew. If we are the last, let us be the last as our fathers and forefathers were. Let us prepare the ground for the last Jews who will come after us and for the last Jews who will rise after them and so on until the end of days. Thank you very much. Uh, we all know that one of the so-called founding principles of this country is separation of church and state. And we all know that there's a lot of confusion about that. And I know when I was growing up in Columbus, Ohio, I was really forced to say the Lord's Prayer every day in junior high and high school, ending with, in Christ, amen. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how it's affected Jewish life and the Jewish experience in this country. Well, um, certainly what makes America distinctive for Jews was the revolution, the Constitution, and this very principle uh, of the, built upon the First Amendment 
uh, that both guarantees uh, no establishment and guarantees free exercise. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, in, in a letter to the Danbury Baptist, reformulates it as uh, a wall of separation uh, between church and state. And that, of course, distinguished Judaism in America uh, from the situation of Jews in all other countries where there were religious establishments, and in some ways still makes America unique. When I lecture in abroad, the first question I always get is, how come we don't have a chief rabbi in America? Now, there are not a few rabbis who wouldn't mind volunteering for the job, but... Um, but the, the reason we don't have a chief rabbi is because you need a chief rabbi where there is a, uh, an archbishop of Canterbury or a cardinal uh, who is recognized by the state. You want somebody stand opposite them. Uh, we don't have such a situation uh, in America. And indeed, every chief rabbi really has power, as in England, because uh, that rabbi has some some official recognition and power and often money from the state. We don't have that in America. So that does make America distinct. Of course, you are pointing out that the ideal of church-state separation um, is not the same as the reality that you remember uh, in, in the public schools uh, or that, that many might uh, like. The truth is that actually from the very beginning of America's founding until now, until literally today when the Supreme Court issued the latest of many, many rulings on uh, matters of religion, today's ruling had to do with um, uh, whether prisoners uh, are entitled to religious privileges while in prison, and they unanimously ruled that they do, um, we've been working out this great experiment. What does it mean, no establishment, free exercise? What happens when they clash? Is America, as some argued, a country that uh, wants to encourage everybody's religious free exercise, or is America a country uh, where religion is a private matter, and there is indeed, as you say, a wall of separation. The courts have gone in different directions, and, and it's a continuing story. Uh, I, I, and uh, in a way, I guess that's what keeps historians in business, that it is changing. I think you're, you're hinting at something important, and then we go on, um, that whereas from the 50s through the late 70s, the Supreme Court, I think, moved more and more in a separationist direction, uh, the court in more recent years has moved in a kind of pro-religious uh, uh, direction. The idea that the Constitution, as today's decision says, guarantees everybody's freedom for religion, whereas an earlier court was much more concerned at removing religion from the public square. Today's court wants to make an equal field for all religions in the public square, and that's one of the issues, I think, that is being debated in American life. Jews can actually, I think, live in both of those worlds. What we can't live with is a world where um, uh, one majority religion imposes its views on the minority and where we do not anymore recognize uh, minority religious rights for what they are. And that, I think, is, is the real danger. Yeah. 
I uh, was involved for years with Ramach, and we had Schechter, Solomon Schechter, and Geiger, and Simon uh, Hirsch, and, uh, and Heschel, and so forth. And I heard constantly saying, the scholarship, where is it going to come after the Holocaust? And it was a big, uh, big concern. And right now, for me, it is so wonderful to read that finally the reform movement is working with the conservative movement, that we need each other. And that is so. Do you see what those scholars did for here? They established, I think, that the best of, of Jewish education, because certainly in the city, in the classroom, unless they went to a day school, did not get that Jewish education. They went to Ramah or Swig or the other camps. And I think that what brought the vibrancy, those students, I know those young people today are so Jewishly involved. Not only are they involved in Judaism, but they're also very deeply involved in the communities at large. Okay. And I wonder if you can so talk you, a little bit. About no, I think that you've pointed um, uh, towards one of the most remarkable developments of the post-war era. Um, most European Jews uh, through World War II assumed that America was a country of largely ignorant uh, Jews. If you wanted real Jewish learning, you had to go to the great centers of Jewish learning uh, in Europe. Um, and they doubted that America could be anything but uh, what they called in Yiddish a treifene medina, an unkosher land. One of the remarkable transformations of the post-war era is the growth of Jewish scholarship, not only on the part of immigrant scholars like Professor Heschel, but their students who were native-born. Today we have a flourishing uh, native-born group of scholars. Indeed, there's no uh, significant Jewish, uh, there's no significant university today in the United States that doesn't have high-level Jewish scholars. Professor Heck, uh, here is a good example, and any university would be deficient uh, without Jewish scholarship, and the production of books uh, in America today on all subjects related to Jews and Judaism matches, it seems to me, any diaspora that's ever been. Uh, and that's very remarkable indeed. I consider Jewish education one of the brightest spots in the American Jewish community. Uh, it has been an enormous investment of post-war Jews, and the population survey suggests that that investment, which begins at the cradle almost with Jewish daycare and ends with high-level um, uh, adult Jewish learning and includes the Jewish educational camping movement, which is also begins in the 1940s, really in 1940, um, uh, with um, uh, uh, Massad and Brandeis Bardeen here on the West Coast, then Ramah, and then the reform movements camp uh, beginning. The first one is actually not Swig, but uh, Olin Sang Ruby in 5051. Um, this is all part of an educational revolution, uh, and the Jew we have the best educated 
native-born generation of American Jews that we've ever had uh, in this country. And I think uh, that those trends are continuing, and, and uh, I expect that that investment will pay off handsomely. Yeah. How would you analyze the shift of Jews as a political demographic group that has been historically strongly democratic, like pretty recently over to the right in the Republican Party? Okay, so the question is the change of Jewish politics. Um, Jews emerge as strongly democratic only in the 20th century. You won't find a 19th century source that assumes either the Jews vote the same way or that they're necessarily democratic. Um, Really, if you look at the figures, it begins pretty well with Al Smith, the Jews vote consistently democratic. And while there are significant uh, ups and downs, thus, for example, um, uh, George Bush Sr. did not break 50%. He's the only 20th century president. Uh, 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 wait a minute, forget that. Uh, uh, that's not what I meant to say. Uh, um, uh, Jimmy, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, is, uh, did not at one point break uh, uh, 20%, uh, 50%. He's the only Democratic uh, pr- uh, uh, pr- um, candidate uh, in the 20th century who didn't. Jews have consistently voted more heavily Democratic, and that remained true uh, for George W. Bush, notwithstanding the pundits. Uh, however, uh, there are interesting changes going on, and I think you're right to point to them. I would say that there are three groups that have begun to vote Republican. And if you're a Republican, you can be quite happy with these three groups. Uh, The first group are Russian Jews. Russian Jews are much more conservative uh, than uh, their American-born counterparts and have voted in very large numbers for the Republican Party. And there are half a million Russian Jews at least. Uh, The second group are Orthodox Jews who have voted overwhelmingly Republican uh, in the last election. The third group, which is interesting, are young Jews. Now, whether that's because a lot of the young Jews are more Orthodox or because young people are shifting away from the Democratic Party remains to be seen. It's not enormous that they didn't break 30%. But at the same time, if you were a Republican, you wouldn't mind having those three groups on your side because all three of them seem to be growing. There are more and more Russian Jews who will become citizens and vote, more and more Orthodox Jews, and, um, and, and obviously young people. So that's probably, to my mind, a good thing. The best thing for Jews and any minority group in this country is to have both parties vying for them. Uh, If one party writes them off, uh, then they're in trouble. Small groups gain power by by essentially playing off both parties. The Jewish community, I think, has done this successfully. And given the situation, I expect it will continue um, to do so.